Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Today, the second installment of our Reports from Recovery series. Hear from one woman who struggled for years with heroin in a maddening cycle of addiction. That's when I thought to myself, oh no, what did I get myself into? I know what this did to me. I know what I suffered going through the the physical withdrawals, but yet I couldn't seem to stop myself from using again. And hear from a country singer whose recovery from heroin is a part of her songwriting and how being in recovery isn't about not feeling something, but about feeling something different. I am terrified of relapsing and therefore, you know, when I think about getting high today, it's nauseating. My clarity today means a lot to me. I'm Kyone Wolf, Life After Heroin. That's next on Audacious, right after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. If you've never used heroin, you probably have a hard time imagining what it's like. I don't know what it's like. When I picture it, I picture a needle. I picture a heart racing. I picture as much pain as there is pleasure. But beyond that, my idea of addiction is probably a mosaic of scenes from a movie or documentaries I'd seen in middle school. Blurry and incomplete. As part of our Reports from Recovery series, today we're hearing from two women whose heroin addictions shook up their lives and put them right up close to the edge of existence. Even though one woman grew up in a stable environment with a supportive family, she and her brother both used heroin. But he didn't live to see the day that she became the director of recovery support services at an addiction recovery center. Later you'll hear what she has to say about what she's been through now that she's 23 years in recovery. But first, meet Jamie Wyatt by her voice, her singing voice. When Jamie Wyatt wrote Rattlesnake Girl, she was a country singer just coming out as a gay woman with eight months in county jail on her permanent record. She'd robbed her heroin dealer. Jamie wrote an album about it, Felony Blues, in 2017. And in 2020, she came out, in more ways than one, with Neon Cross. Like every addiction story, it is singularly hers. Before we hear about what Jamie went through, I want to let you know that if your story about addiction is ongoing and you could use some help, check out SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. It's an agency within the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and it's a starting point to get yourself help. It's got resources for friends and family, too. Visit samhsa.gov. When Jamie Wyatt and I met this week over Zoom, I asked her to tell me about how her addiction to heroin got started. Honestly, I could be like 
kind of a smart aleck and say, well, it started with pixie sticks, sugar, attention seeking, you know? Um, yeah, I'd say that painkillers led to heroin in the most obvious way. I remember at one point, maybe it was cocaine, maybe it was alcohol, um, you know, all those subtle lines in the sand that I drew just disappeared. And eventually I, you know, for a few years, I was a daily user of painkillers, of Vicodin, of Oxycontin and all that stuff. So it escalated and, and eventually one day it was, um, it was on the table. It was just on the table to use heroin. And um, it was sort of history after that. It just, you know what the deal is, and this is the funniest thing I've heard from many addicts is that it's just cheaper. It's just much more economical to use heroin than it is Oxycontin. And more available. Right, yes, and more available. Um, though at one point, getting pills was extremely easy. Thank goodness it's not as easy, but yet the problem's not fixed there, right? <laughs> so when did you know that you were in over your head, that you were addicted? At the age of 18, I was in a van leaving for like my second tour maybe, and I was kicking, I was detoxing Vicodin. And I, I realized that I didn't fully know what it was, but then I was like, oh man, this is what I've read about. And you know, the physical symptoms, sweating and the feverish and the aches, just like bone aches and restlessness and just like, extremely anxious. So yeah, that was the first time I, I knew I was physically addicted. And I remained in denial about the mental component of addiction for a long time after that. At 21, you served eight months in an LA County jail for robbing your dealer. Yeah. Yes. What happened? <laughs> My dealer was also a user as kind of, I don't know, maybe 60% of them are in my opinion, right? I would, I would be interested to know later what the percentage is because it's like they're either getting off on power or supplying a habit. Or for some people, they're trying to feed a family. But um, this dealer got hooked on crack in the process and started to owe me money and then stopped answering their phone. I was on a bender and um, it just seemed like the best idea to go get my money. I really needed it. <laughs> and I didn't think that the dealer would turn me in, being that they were a dealer. But they had some family in high places. And that, you know, maybe saved my life. That I really am grateful for the experience. The only thing I ever regret, and this is what I talk about, is taking the plea. I just question if I should have taken a felony strike because I, I wrote a whole album about the felony thing for that reason, that um, it's been impossible, not impossible, it's been very, very challenging to gain employment. And it was almost impossible to walk into even Petco refused me when I had a felony, a 211 robbery on my record. And so, and that doesn't go away. I've, I still, you know, Tennessee denied my voting rights. I've still to this day, I'm stamped and branded. And it's like, it's just a little much. There's so many people that cannot ever get ahead because of that one mistake. 
when they were young. Now, when you were in prison for eight months, did you have any support? Because you must have been withdrawing while you were in there, right? Was there any sort of support while you were physically dealing with being separated from the drugs? No, you know, but I was very lucky. I didn't have to withdraw as badly because I had um, I had overdosed and I was arrested out of the ER room. And so I didn't have really any physical withdrawal symptoms. When you overdosed, how much of your head had wrapped around, I just overdosed? Oh, not much. No, that's the severity of the mental illness, I think, with addiction. was It really didn't have much of an impact. Hmm. I woke up and I was like, can I go now? And this nurse said, well, you're not going anywhere. You burglarized someone. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. So I was just kind of more panicked that I was getting arrested. Rather than, oh, wow, I survived this. I could have died. It wasn't, it wasn't that movie moment where the light bulb goes off and you ride your horse into the sunset. No, not at all. Not at all. And L.A. County Jail was not free from um, drugs. There were drugs in jail quite a bit. So you didn't use for seven years. I did after jail. I did not start my time when I was incarcerated because I did use in jail. I started my time when I stepped out. So I said, yeah, seven years. Can you put your finger on what set you back? I, you know, in addition to drifting away from my support and my meetings, but really mainly because I wasn't comfortable with my sexual identity and the friends that I'd made in 12-step fellowship and stuff, I just, no one was gay. I just didn't even feel like they'd understand and that I I sort of even had tried to talk about it at one point and that somebody people were more like don't worry about that everybody does that when you're loaded and it's like I had this sort of doubt for like years and years but because I was under the influence as a young person I think because I was under the influence when I was having relationships with women when I was you know so young it was just like oh, is that something I do when I'm loaded? But what I discovered was that's something I have the freedom to do when I'm loaded because I am not bonded by my own self-judgment that I could actually be myself when I was under the influence. Yeah, and you grew up in rural Washington. You didn't see anyone who looked like you. You were a total tomboy. Me too. Yeah. And <laughs> and and that sort of you know revelation that it wasn't something that you only did when you were loaded. It was like you said, something that you yeah. were. Yeah. And it was just weird. Uh, you know, I didn't, no one, just no one knew any better. And my parents were just trying to keep the lights on. My mother was trying to keep the lights on, I should say. Um, so they didn't know if they had seen something. My mom was just like, she's tomboy, I skateboarded. And, you know, I played in little league as like the only girl and, you know, I played guitar since I was five. But, you know, those things don't make you gay. It's just it's just that I didn't know how to talk about anything. And all my sisters are so, so straight. And um, I was really upset with myself for ignoring my intuition for a lot of years. Is there anything that anyone at any point in your life could have said or done to stop you from using? Mm, maybe 
maybe it would have been that if I had just seen someone like me. So more, you know, that's why I'm a proponent of visibility. And that's why when people are like, why is it important who you bed down with? That's a favorite quote, you know, from, uh, uh, you know, country publications. Why is it important who she beds down with? Because I tried to kill myself. I, I nearly succeeded many times. That's why it's important. And it's important for young people to see someone like me because I didn't. And I had a hellacious time as a result. So um, if I just seen, you know, maybe if I'd had been connected to someone um, in the LGBTQ community, maybe that would have helped. Are you afraid that you'll start using again? Is is afraid the right word? Oh, I'd be, t- yes, I, I am terrified of relapsing. And therefore, I think of it like poison. You know, when I think about getting high today, it's nauseating. Um, when I sometimes when I see it on movies or television shows, it it makes me like, you know, just recoil at the thought. And I think not only you know that physical allergy, but it's that my clarity today means a lot to me. My mind and and my mind is only so clear as it could be. And <laughs> uh, you know, after years of this and being an artist and you know, it's, it's, it's just, I couldn't imagine being high. Why? Oh, it'd be awful. Like, I don't need it. I don't need it. Yeah. Especially considering you've used your experiences, your pain, your addiction, your recovery, you've turned it into music in the form of your 2017 release, Felony Blues, your 2020 album, Neon Cross. I'm really curious to hear about how your songwriting has changed because your pain has changed in a way, right? I mean, Deep emotions and turmoil and desire and frustration and passion are classic ingredients for art. And and blasting those feelings through the release valve of making music is therapeutic. And so I wonder how being sober has affected the way that you create your songs. It's affected the creative process. It is no longer an on and off switch that I control with when I'm going to sit down, when I'm going to get high. However, even in that statement, I'm lying to myself because I could sit down with drugs at the piano with the guitar in the room and then get high and nothing come. So there were those moments too, right? However, there's a regularity to it where I just need to honor the, the muscle and work regularly at it. And whenever the muse knocks, like try to answer. But then there's also like meditation's been huge. Naps are huge. Driving, experiencing joy, leaving room for joy. That's like really important. Leaving room for like life. Like honestly, for me, it's sometimes just leaving things undone and allowing for creativity. But I have this source that is never going away. Now, as far as the emotional component that you asked about, I have this source that'll never go away that I know how to tap. I don't know if that's healthy or not, but it's, there's pain there that I, I know how to lean into it and I know how to step away from it. I I'm experienced now with my own emotions and how to feel that I'm okay with crying. I'm okay with grieving 
because it's not going to kill me is what, and it's something I had to um, condition my body to learn how to feel. There's certain things that I'm like, you know, maybe still processing, but the point is, is that I'm really active about um, emotional health and emotional quote unquote sobriety. I know there's a lot of people listening to us right now who aren't struggling with addiction, but they know and love somebody who is, and they really want to help their loved one, right? But they also need to protect themselves. And so I wonder what worked for your family and friends as they navigated supporting you? And what do you wish maybe some of them did differently in those worst, most difficult times? You know, my mom really like, she just kind of let it run its course. She'd been through this several times and I have a sister in addiction. So she's been around this a lot. The problem with supporting an addict that I've found now, cause I've been on both sides of it. The problem that I found is that um, supporting an addict and addiction is the exact opposite of our intuition of how we love them. There's a saying that to carry an addict is to kill an addict because that's the principle of an enabling. And that's something I've found to be true. Um, I've been enabled a ton money when I'm getting high um, lodging when I'm getting high. Even that was a hard reality for me was to, yeah, crash on couches forever. Duh. But to finally find myself sleeping on, on the street that did it for me. It, it's that did it for me because the places I went were finally too uncomfortable and the drug finally turned on me, you know? So I hate to say it, it tough love is, is what works. Worked for you. I'm not saying all the time, but it worked for me. Excuse me. Thank you. Your addiction among so many other experiences that you've had in your life has been a part of making you who you are. It's contributed to your music and the way that you see the world and interact with people. But I wonder if you could go back in time and talk to that kid version of you in rural Washington on the skateboard <laughs> with maybe the Janko jeans, I'm not sure, in the hoodie. <laughs> what would you say if you could just transmit a message to that girl on that skateboard? Mm. I have no regrets, but I actually practice a program now and I've done a lot of therapy where I do talk to the that inner child and a lot of the time. So that's interesting that you would say that. Um, I love you. I forgive you is something I say on a regular basis to myself, but also I think to that little girl, I just say you're perfect the way you are. You're perfectly flawed and just be you at all cost to your own self be true. You know, I think, I think that would have been nice. You know, I probably would have needed said all the time, but <laughs> I think we all do, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I like that question. Thank you. I've talked to a few people who are in recovery during this pandemic. Some of them re have reported that being home more often and the bars and restaurants being closed or restricted has made their lives in recovery a lot easier. Oh, good. And some have said that the stress has made everything worse. So how's it been for you? How are you? Well, you know, it's it's so interesting because, again, I, like growing in recovery, I can be utterly shocked and horrified that I don't have this, my main source of release of performing, that I, I haven't had that, and that even physically I've 
experienced just the change and the tension in my body. And then I've also, on the other side, used this time and been so extremely blessed at this time. I mean, right when the pandemic hit, I met someone and fell completely in love. And it's like something I've never felt before. And it's just like the timing is so uncanny that I, I consider it that of the spirit, you know, whatever you believe, but that it's it's definitely not by my own making. And And then at the same time, it was like, other people have suffered more than me, but I still have to sort of acknowledge my own suffering because I'm worthy of it. And that's my stuff. I get to walk through that. I get to work on that. I get to, I get to carry that and I get to drop that burden. But you know, it's like, it's things were just went on a hold. That's all. It'll work out eventually if I use my time wisely. And I have, I have used this time to train vocally in ways I've wanted to. For a long time, I've used time to work on piano. I've used time to write. I've used the time to work with fellows in recovery. I've used the time to be in love. It's, I've used the time as best as I can. And I think that that's the gift of recovery. Because I, I honestly, first of all, I can't do anything and I wouldn't be alive if I hadn't gotten into recovery. But also this, the flip side is that I get to keep growing. Because your your history with addiction and sobriety are a part of your story and you are so outspoken about it, I know you do it because you know it helps people too. And it helps you as well. Yes. What kind of responses are you hearing from people about your struggles? I've had veterans, grown men reach out and tell me about their struggles. And I do what I can. I direct them to resources, though, because I am not one single source to the cure. Isn't it as individual as the person, right? It is. And it's, um, I say non-existent because it's, it's more just, it's every day is the cure. And every day is, it's sort of a, for me, it's like a, a divine cure and, and not in a religious way. And unfortunately, they don't make a pill for this. <laughs> And that might be problematic in itself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Addicted to the cure. Yeah. Um, and part of me, I keep going off base here. Um, I think a lot of humans need assistance in crying. <laughs> and I'm okay. I'm okay helping with that. Like, I really believe in crying. It's really important. So I know it breaks my heart when when I see people crying and someone will say, oh, no, 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 don't cry. It's like, no, no cry, <laughs> please. Get, let the yeah. valve be released. It's the body's natural way of, of healing. Um, the human body is incredible. Gosh. I know you don't, you almost don't want to give it too much credit. Like, uh, you know, when you're stressed, my mom was telling me about how when she was in this terrible job, she had an inhaler in her hand every time she'd walk into work. And as soon as she quit, she didn't need the inhaler anymore. And, and you want to not give your body that much credit for its reaction to stress yeah, because yeah. that means you're accountable to it to some degree, right? right. You can You can do something to face it, like you're talking about going on long drives and finding ways for your body to experience joy and peace and rest. Those aren't pills. Mm -hmm. And so you're accountable to yourself in that sense. Absolutely. Like, the better I treat my body, the better my body is to me. And that's singing. I've heard that. Songwriting, I've heard that. And and mental health. And now I'm aware of my mental health because I'm not under the influence, you know? And I know when I take care of myself, like 
my days are good and life is great and actually it always it always was even with sadness even with loss is there anything that people don't ask you about in the context of this interview that you wish people would ask you or is there anything i left out that's on your mind I'll, I'll test to something. The recovery process taught me everything about life. Recovery taught me everything, how to speak, how to treat people, how to love others, how to love myself. And, and taught me how to learn, taught me how to be teachable, taught me how to listen. You've been humbled by it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a process. Boy, that's a process. But yeah, man, you know, there's an, there's an album out there and it's open to so many different interpretations, but my story is, is as such. Jamie Wyatt, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. When we get back. You grow up with the knowledge that, you know, oh, well, heroin is addicting, but I didn't connect that until it had already happened to me. How one woman broke her cycle of addiction. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf, and you're listening to the second installment of our Reports from Recovery series. The first one was about alcohol addiction, and you can find it at ctpublic.org audacious. This episode is about heroin addiction. 23 years ago, Rebecca Allen probably wasn't thinking that she'd someday be the director of recovery support services at the Connecticut Community for Addiction Recovery. She was busy figuring out how she could make it through a day without heroin. I asked her what led up to the first time she tried it? Very early on, uh, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old, I, I started experimenting with substances. So I started smoking cigarettes. I started, um, you know, drinking a little bit. I really, really liked uh, weed, right? <laughs> so uh, there, there was uh, probably a, a four or five year period through my teens where, where I smoked every day. And I think because I, I was in those circles that the other substances just kind of, you know, came into my environment and I wanted to experiment. I wanted to experience life, you know, fully and being a teenager, it, it's so hard to kind of find your, your place. And I never really felt that I fit in anywhere, you know, so I was always looking for something. What did it feel like? Um, with heroin, it, it was this warmth that just spread throughout your body and you literally felt yourself, you know, enveloped in this, this warm, um, I can't really describe it. It, it, it it's happy, you know, it made me happy. <laughs> and ever since the first time I did it, I've, I've been seeking that feeling or I, I sought that feeling. Um, so the first time I, I tried it, that's all I wanted to do. And it wasn't until a good month to two months later that I realized that I was physically addicted to it. You know, so you grow up with the knowledge that, you know, oh, well, heroin is addicting. But I didn't connect that until it had already happened to me, you know, and it wasn't until I was physically addicted that, that I realized, oh, oh <laughs> you know, <laughs> what did I get myself into? What was it that made you realize 
I'm in deep. After the first couple times of going through that physical withdrawal and the obsession, I should say, to use again, even after going through all of that, that's when I thought to myself, oh no, what did I get myself into? I know what this did to me. I know what I suffered going through the the physical withdrawals, but yet I couldn't seem to stop myself from using again. And I always had in my mind, you know, oh, well, you know, I'll, I just won't do it every day, right? You know, I'll, I'll do it every three days or, or just on the weekends, but it always ended up in the same place. I know that some people start and continue to use drugs to numb pain, to escape from pain, to face pain, to do something about pain and the existence of something that happened to them or a terrible choice they made. But I know some people also use drugs to feel something different that, you know, as far as they can tell, pain isn't really a factor. It's more like they're seeking a different feeling. Was that the case for you? Or was it pain? Was it something else that got you started on heroin? You know, I thought a lot about that because that's kind of, at least especially professionally, that's the narrative that I hear a lot is that people who use drugs are self-medicating for some deeper trauma or hurt. You know, while I think that is true for a certain uh, segment of the population, I don't think that it's true overall, you know, and I know for myself, it, it wasn't true. There, there's always kind of incidences in your childhood or in your past that, you know, are, are difficult. But, you know, for the most part, I grew up in a very loving family. I had what I needed, maybe not exactly what I wanted, right? <laughs> But I had my struggles as well as I had an older brother that actually overdosed when he was 29. And I watched my parents and my parents were so, um, again, it's like, oh, well, what did, your, what, did, what did you guys do to have two children that, that are, are, you know, heroin addicts? You know, my parents did nothing wrong. You know, my parents, um, again, provided a, a loving environment for us. And just the way that they were treated by, you know, other families in town or things like that was just really sad. And again, we're, we're talking, this was, you know, the, the, the mid eighties, I think my brother, um, overdosed in 1987. So did he live? Oh no, no, he, he passed away. Sorry. And, and it was, um, it was almost a typical story of some of the things going on now where, you know, he had had periods of, of sobriety. And um, during a time where, where he came back into an environment and, and had access, he used again, and, and that was it. He went to sleep and never woke up. How did your family find out that you used? Oh, so it was shortly, maybe a year after my brother had passed away that, that I had gotten involved with heroin. And, you know, my behavior, of course, started to change and, and my parents picked up on it. And one day while, while I was at school, they searched my room and they found a needle. So when I walked into, when I walked into the house that day, right on the kitchen table was needle, spoon and <laughs> the paraphernalia. And I knew at that time that, that you know, it was done, you know. <laughs> However, the interesting kind of thing is that I led my parents to believe 
that it was cocaine and not heroin. Why? Is why? You know that that's that's funny. I just thought in my mind that it was better than saying that it was heroin. And it really had nothing to do with my brother or whatever. It was just heroin. Just the fact that it was heroin. So for for my parents and and I guess just to make it a little easier for them, I was like, "No, I'm doing cocaine." And you know, the whole, you know, crying and you had to think fast too. <laughs> you couldn't really like sit down with a pen and paper and think, all right, how am I going to deal with this? What am I going to say? You had to think on your feet. I had to think on my feet. And I did end up going to, um, to a detox at the time. And, you know, of course they knew that it was heroin, you know, but that was how my, my family found out what was really going on with me. So at one point your usage led to incarceration. Tell me about it. I had a I had a daughter. So when I was 17, I, I gave birth to my first daughter. At that time, I kind of basically got my together. And, you know, I, I started, um, you know, attending college and trying to do the right thing. But when I started using heroin, she was about three years old. And I had gotten to the point in my addiction, and we, we both lived with my parents at the time, I had gotten to the point in my addiction where I, I left, I left my house, I left my parents' house and I left her in their care. For me, I, I guess I was really trying to protect them. I couldn't stop doing what I was doing. I didn't want to hurt them. And I knew that if I stayed, you know, not only would I continue to use, but but I would I would start stealing those other behaviors that go along with, with addiction. Um, you know, so I left. Back then, you know, to keep a a heroin habit going, it, it was expensive. So I started, you know, shoplifting and, and doing, you know, things like that to support my habit. How much would each injection cost? So I was, I lived in the Willimantic area, you know, which is kind of suburban. And at the time, a, a bag of heroin was $20. And what year is this about? This is probably about 1988-1989. And how long would it last you? I would say I used anywhere from, you know, two to three bags a day. Um but even if I had one bag a day, I still would be okay. I wouldn't I wouldn't go into withdrawals. Um if I went into the city, say if I went into Hartford, I could get it cheaper sometimes there. So you were using between $20 and $60 worth of heroin a day, depending on the day and the availability. And how did that lead you to the first time you were incarcerated? So my first time I was incarcerated was actually for renting a, a VCR, if you can believe it. Back then, you know, you were allowed to rent a VCR and I never returned it. I sold it, right? <laughs> that was actually my, my first time I, I wound up in jail and I, I'll never forget, you know, standing in front of the judge and, you know, and then he's like, okay, well, you know, since you, since you don't have a job and you can't pay a fine, we're going to send you to jail for 10 days. And I was just dumbfounded. I just never thought that I just never thought something small like that would land me in jail for 10 days. Yeah, for 10 days, because I, I couldn't pay the fine that they wanted to give me. So I'd always take a plea, uh, a plea deal, plea bargain, and, and get the best deal I possibly could. 
At what point did you realize this can't keep going on? You know, it, it took me many years to make that decision that, that something had to change. I, I just couldn't do it anymore. So I told you that I, I had my, my first daughter when I was 17. I also had another daughter um, when I was 24. And I was incarcerated when I had her. So back then, um, they would give you what they called a medical furlough. So the CEO would drive you to the hospital, you know, you would stay at the hospital. And when you were released, they would come pick you up. And that's how I had my second daughter. And, you know, I, I just remember having to, you know, go having to go back to jail and leaving her in the hospital and praying that that her father, who was also a heroin addict, but he was not in jail, that her father would be able to take care of her until I got out. It was probably another couple years after the birth of my younger daughter that I knew something had to change. You know, I just couldn't do it anymore. I, I was, um, I think I had just turned 30 years old. And at that time too, I had had a little recovery. You know, I knew I could do it. I had had about a year where, where I had been in a, a long-term program but I was doing well, you know, I was working every day. I, I was, you know, attending uh, meetings. I was engaging with, with my counselor, which was always an issue for me. I, I, I couldn't stand any therapist. <laughs> I, just... <laughs> I want to ask what worked, but I know that's not the right question because it's not like you're cured and that's it. But what worked? <laughs> what, what really set you on a path where you were able to solidly start a recovery that now has lasted over 22 years? So early on, I, I was at a, a long-term treatment program and we worked every day. So I, I worked in a factory, I had a physical job. But yet when I got back to the house, there was this little treadmill downstairs. And I would get on that treadmill and I would have my Walkman and my music and I would just walk. And I would walk for about 30 minutes. After a few weeks of doing that, I noticed a change in how I felt and my ability to, I guess, sit with emotions. I was always very uncomfortable. I remember being in kind of like group therapy sessions where, you know, at the beginning or the end, we would go around and we would say how we feel. I would always say good or bad. I definitely wasn't in touch with my feelings. Um, so finally they got sick of that and they're like, you have to say something other than that, right? <laughs> so I used to sit in front of this poster that had these different smiley faces and these different emotions just so I could see that poster and come up with a feeling that wasn't good or bad. So I noticed that, that when I started exercising and, and having that time to kind of connect with my inner thoughts, it helped. And it helped in, in a bunch of different areas that helped me maintain my recovery one day at a time. I, I just really focused on that day and doing what I needed to do and not project too much into the future. That was Rebecca Allen, the Director of Recovery Support Services at the Connecticut Community for Addiction Recovery, or CCAR. She hit the 23-year sobriety milestone this February. If you're struggling with addiction, you can find resources at ccar.us or SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. They're at S-A-M, 
hsa.gov. After the break. I don't fit the profile of a heroin addict. You know, I never have. And that's one of the ways that I personally hope to change the conversation around addiction. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is the second of our Reports from Recovery series, and we're hearing from Rebecca Allen about her addiction to heroin. She's 23 years in recovery, and she's also the Director of Recovery Support Services at the Connecticut Community for Addiction Recovery, or CCAR. Now, when I see Recovery Center in the name of an organization, I don't really understand what that means. So I asked Rebecca to talk about what CCAR does and how it's different. So CCAR is a recovery community organization. And it was one of the first recovery community organizations um, in the nation. So they they are grassroots. Um, they are the board of directors as well as the staff are people in recovery. But we're here to serve others in recovery. Um, we do it by providing ourselves as living proof that recovery is is possible for people. We provide education and training for people around recovery. And we believe in multiple pathways of recovery. Now, I know there's not one like face of addiction or of heroin addiction or of weed addiction, although there are stereotypes for weed addiction. But when people, (laughs) (laughs) but when you tell people about your history of drug usage, just out out in the world, out of context of of your work at, at CCAR, how do people react? It's funny because, you know, I, you know, people, people have their, their, uh, ideas of, of what a heroin addict looks like. And I, I know that I'm not what they have in mind when they think of a heroin addict. Will you describe yourself for our radio listeners? Sure. So I'm, um, blonde haired, blue eyed, um, you know, white female. I'll say I'm middle-aged, right? (laughs) And, you know, I, I just, I don't fit the profile of, of a heroin addict. You know, I never have. And, and that's one of the ways that I personally hope to change the conversation around addiction. I got my graduate degree in, in 2015 from UConn. I, I have a master's in public health. And I love talking to, to you know, my, my fellow students because most of them were, they're in med school or, or, you know, they were getting dual degrees. And I always shared with them my history because addiction is a, is a medical condition. You know, it's just like any other chronic medical condition and it should be treated like that. You know, it's not a moral failing. It, it's not, you know, it's not a matter of willpower for people. The, the continued um, use of substances actually changes the way your brain functions. And it should be treated like any other medical condition. So I talk a lot to people that work in the field um, because they have their preconceptions too. And I just simply say, you know, treat people as an individual. So that, that's one of the things that, that I do love sharing. And I, and I share openly too. I wish more of the people that, that I used with early on were more open about that fact. Um, and I, and I get it, you know, there's stigma and there's, you know, there's, there's discrimination. I won't even call it stigma, but unless people are open, I don't think it's going to, I don't think it's going to change. 
With your work at CCAR, if you had a magic wand and you could have some kind of resource or some sort of huge change that would make your job easier, that would make it easier for people to not become addicted in the first place or to have access to help that really works, magic wand, think big, what would that thing be? Treatment on demand. So that's one of the things that that is missing um, in this country as a whole, but even in Connecticut. Connecticut does a pretty good job when it comes to um, treatment for individuals that, that have a substance use disorder. However, there's still barriers for people. You know, there's still things around insurance. There's still things around transportation. And there's also the way the kind of system is set up where, you know, we know that that people have the best success if they do at least a 90-day program. But to get into a longer-term program like that, you know, you have to go on a waiting list. Well, number one, you have to have the right insurance. You have to go on a waiting list. There's all of these different barriers for people. So for, for lack of a better term, I would, I would say treatment on demand. You know, you have to take advantage of that small window of time where somebody's actually open to getting help. It doesn't last long. You know, sometimes it's, it's only a half hour. Sometimes it's five minutes. But if we can get that person to a treatment facility and keep that person in that mode of wanting to get better and, and to, you know, do whatever you have to do, but we need, we need to make it easy for people. Let's make the, the healthy choice, the easy choice. Right. And again, recovery is really about improving your health and wellness. It's not always about abstinence. For those who are listening to you and they have a loved one who is addicted and they know that ultimately it's in that other person's hands. You can't force anyone to do pretty much anything in this scenario, but what are some of the useful things that people can think about, can say, can do to make their loved one's life easier? And what are some things that people do that, that aren't helpful at all? Get help for yourself. Um, whether that's through, um, you know, parenting groups, you know, or whether it's, you know, seeing a therapist or, or whatever, it helps so much when you're able to talk about it. There's a saying in the recovery community, you know, you're only as sick as your secrets. And sometimes just talking about something is so helpful. Saying the words out loud. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So as a family member or, or, you know, parent, loved one, whatever, definitely seek help for yourself and, and keep those lines of communication open for your loved one. Addiction is an isolating condition. And a lot of times we'll push people away for a number of different reasons. I know for me, it was because I thought I was keeping them safe. I was a show. I, I knew what I would do. And, and unfortunately, you always hurt your loved ones the, the, the most because, you know, you think that they're, you know, they're going to be there for you. So you have to, you have to make sure that, that you're getting support for yourself. You have to keep you and whatever other family members safe. So if your loved one is, is you know, um, stealing from you or, or just, you know, it's not okay. You know, it's, it's not okay. <laughs> you know, there, there are um, boundaries you can set and still uh, have that line of communication open and still 
treat that person with love and kindness and, you know, care and concern and still have boundaries. You know, there's a way to do that. If you need help finding that way, seek professional help. There's all of these different um, online groups for, for parental support. So, so if you, if for whatever reason, you don't want to seek that, that formal treatment, I, I say to people all the time, Google it, you know, <laughs> that's how I find out information. <laughs> Google it, see what's out there. Well, thank you so much for talking with me and congratulations on all of your years of sobriety. Thank you. I appreciate it. And, and I didn't do anything that millions of other people have not done. There's an estimated 23 million Americans living in recovery. So, you know, I, I thank you for that. Um, but I also feel that I haven't done anything that many others haven't done and that I stand on their shoulders to do the work that I do now. You can find Rebecca Allen at Connecticut Community for Addiction Recovery. They're at ccar.us. Or if you need help navigating your way through your addiction, visit SAMHSA. That's the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. They're at samhsa.gov. To hear the first installment of our Reports from Recovery series about alcohol addiction, featuring a Connecticut man who was two weeks into sobriety when we talked, and a conversation with a trans activist and poet who just celebrated their 1,000th day sober, visit ctpublic.org audacious. There you'll also be able to listen back to shows about things like the philosophy that it's immoral to have children and we should collectively self-extinct, what it's like donating your eggs five times, my first visit to a nudist resort, what a perfect fluid sounds like, and how the way we train our dogs says a lot about ourselves. That and then some are at ctpublic.org audacious. Our show is produced by me and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. Send me your reactions and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kyone Wolf. And my email is cwolf at ctpublic.org. Online, use the hashtag audaciouspublic. Thanks for listening. <laughs>